внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. We know about the troll farms, we know about the disinformation, we know about the strategic corruption, we know about the electoral interference. And we know that Vladimir Putin's regime isn't even trying to hide its interference in Western democracies anymore. In fact, it's bragging about it. In a widely read article back in 2019, longtime Kremlin aide Vladislav Surkov said the quiet part out loud, writing that foreign politicians accuse Russia of interference in elections and referendums across the globe. In fact, It's even more serious. Russia is interfering with their brains, and they do not know what to do with their own altered consciousness. The Putin regime is indeed waging a political war on Western democracy. And next week, an important new report is due to come out from the Washington, D.C.-based Free Russia Foundation that takes a close and forensic look at one front in that war, the Kremlin's ongoing effort to undermine American democracy. And today, we'll discuss the report The Kremlin's malign influence inside the United States with one of its authors. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm also honored to say that I authored the preface of the report that we will be discussing today. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book American Kleptocracy, and author of not just one but two chapters of the Free Russia Foundation's report, The Kremlin's Malign Influence Inside the United States. Welcome back to The Vertical, Casey. Great to be back in The Vertical. Thanks, Brian. Great to have you. And so before we launch into our discussion about your chapters, Casey, I want to just uh, give a much-deserved shout-out to the other authors of the report. Russian opposition leader and former deputy energy minister Vladimir Milov wrote two excellent chapters looking at Moscow's infiltration of the U.S. energy sector and critical infrastructure, respectively. Maria Snegovaya of Virginia Tech And Kohei Wantabi of the University of Innsbruck wrote an exhaustive account of how the Kremlin proxies have used social media as a tool of influence and disruption in the United States in an effort to paralyze decision-making, suppress public trust, and bolster media narratives that advance Russia's strategic objectives. Both Maria and Vladimir, of course, are longtime friends of the vertical, and we hope to get them on soon to discuss their contributions to this important report. And Casey, you, of course, wrote two chapters that I found fascinating and, quite frankly, learned quite a bit from. In one, you examined how the Kremlin-connected oligarchs have used donations to nonprofits to launder their reputations and infiltrate the upper echelons of the American political and cultural elite. And in another, you shed a lot of light on the Kremlin's backing of various far-right and separatist movements in the United States. These include white supremacists seeking to create separate racial enclaves, neo-Confederates looking to revive the losing side in the American Civil War, and state-level secessionists who aim to create independent countries out of individual U.S. states, most notably in California and Texas. Let's begin with the separatists and the Confederates, as I found this chapter deeply disturbing, um, and it's a bit 
timely at the moment. I've been following your work on this topic for many years now, going back to your report on the Kremlin support for the so-called Cal-Exit campaign back in 2017, something, quite frankly, I didn't really take seriously until I started reading your, your work on this. Yeah. This, is, this is a Kremlin strategy. It dates back at least to 2013 when the Kremlin-connected Center for Strategic Communications produced a white paper that I referenced in the preface, arguing that the Putin regime should exploit wedge issues in Western country re- countries related to race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation and identity. Explain to our listeners what you found. What's the Kremlin doing to support white supremacists, neo-Confederates, and separatists in the United States? And how successful have, have they been? And what can the U.S. do about this? Sure. Thanks, Brian. Obviously, it's happy. I'm very happy to be back here. And a big thanks to everybody at the Free Russia Foundation for this excellent forthcoming report. So stay tuned for that. It should be dropping later this month. And obviously, Brian, thanks so much for writing the preface to that as well. Hopefully, the other authors will be on here very soon to talk about their own contributions because I read through a few of them already, and they are fantastic. Uh, Brian, you know, it's it, it's funny. Uh, there, there's, there's a short answer to, to, to your question about what they're doing, how successful they've been, but there's kind of a longer answer that I hope the folks uh, listening at home will uh, read through the entire report to uh, to find. You know, as you, as you mentioned, this cultivation, this support for, and this application of these separatist movements here in the U.S. do fall into these three buckets. As you just mentioned, you have these kind of state-level movements in places like Texas and California who have these kinds of broader geographic efforts uh, the folks that are supporting this kind of neo-Confederate or Confederacy 2.0 movement. And then at a very kind of very, very broad level, you have these kind of white nationalist movements that want to see just the outright disintegration of the U.S. and have this kind of race war uh, result. Now, we've seen time and time and time again, uh, it, as it turns out, a Russian presence within each of these. So I'll go through each of these just very, very briefly, and then we can turn to uh, kind of how successful they've been and, and what the U.S. can do about it. So on the one hand, uh, you know, putting my Texan hat on as a former resident of the great state of Texas, you know, I'm an alum of Rice University down in Houston, Texas, and I, I still miss that. Frankly, Houston's got a lot of uber uh, uh, hip areas, just like <laughs> New York does. You know, I remember sitting as a, uh, a graduate student at Columbia University's uh, Harriman Institute, where I was getting a master's. In, in Russian studies. This was would have been about 2014, the immediate aftermath of the Crimean annexation. And I was watching how a number of uh, Russian uh, propaganda outlets were saying, well, look, if the U.S. wants to uh, maintain its claim to Texas, then boy, oh boy, they need to recognize Russian claims in Crimea. It's the exact same. There's no difference. If you support the, the American annexation of Texas, you got to support the Russian annexation of Crimea. And that, you know, it struck me a little strange. The logic didn't qu- quite flow. But then it turned out, as I was reading, there was a Texas secessionist who was in Moscow at the time who was giving interviews to Russian propaganda outlets saying things to the effect of, well, President Obama, he's a tyrant. All the Texans in the American military, they support Texas independence, and I'm doing what I can here in Moscow to drum up support for the independence of Texas. Now, again, Texas was an independent country back in the 19th century, back in the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, it just it all struck me as so strange. Now, there were a lot of strange things that were taking place, but this was the one thread that I that I pulled on, and I'm very grateful that I did. Because it turned out that I have spent the last few years, because of that one moment, because of those series of articles, following the Russian relations with secessionists in Texas and California and elsewhere. Uh, What they were doing is they were flying American secessionists from Texas, from California, over to Moscow to host these kind of talk shop 
conferences with other secessionists elsewhere from the UK, from Italy, from Spain, which are obviously dealing with any number of their own separatist movements uh, themselves. Uh, what the Kremlin was doing was they set up or they helped set up and fund a nominal nonprofit. So this wasn't funding directly from the Kremlin itself. It was funding via, again, a nominal well, third class, party. It was a cutout. It was a cutout. All you got to do is, is follow the money. And what I was, I and other journalists were able to do was, again, track that funding to look at what they were doing in terms of flying over these secessionists elsewhere. Now, lo and behold, that wasn't it. They also, as we saw in the 2016 interference campaign, uh, began setting up all these fake social media accounts as well. And again, Maria Snegevaya's report goes into further detail about the uh, social media side of things um, during those uh, interference efforts. And again, lo and behold, the most successful political Facebook page they set up was targeting directly Texas secessionists. Right. This was a hard, page. Hard, it was Heart of Texas, right? Heart of Texas. That's right. Yeah, this is this is uh, certainly one of the, <laughs> I don't know, most memorable pages for a number of reasons, not, not least some of the broken English that we saw on there. I think one of my favorite memes from that page, it said nothing more than, uh, quote, in love with Texas shape. And not quite something a native English speaker would say. Right, but right. But yeah, it was still fooling people, though. It that's was still fooling. No, this is the this is the thing, right? We can we can we can you know dismiss these guys as kind of fringe movements. We can shake our head at them. But this was a page that ended up getting more followers than the official Texas Democrat, official Texas Republican pages combined. This was a page that convinced armed white nationalists to show up in the streets of Houston to square off with counter protesters. Now, we're very lucky that that didn't evolve into bloodshed. That didn't evolve into something far, far worse. Uh, anyways, long story short, what we've seen since then are continuing bits of evidence, pieces of evidence of the cultivation of these secession movements. Now, those are on the state level. We also see things like the neo-Confederates. They've been targeting them on social media as well. We have seen things as well. And this is maybe the most concerning element. The white nationalist mm -hmm. element. You know, there's a uh, an organization that I detailed in the uh, the chapter on these relations. It's called the it's called the base, which uh, right, uh, right. Uh, you know is, is what they decided to name themselves. And we've seen a number of their leading figures arrested. In choice of a name, by the way. Well, right. <laughs> if any of our listeners uh, speak Arabic, it just so happens that Al Qaeda also translates to the base. So I I don't know whether that was purposeful or or what, but certainly that's their uh, that's 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 what they decided to go with. Um, a number of their folks have been arrested over the last few years for plotting domestic terror events, hoping to spark what they called a civil war. I mean, I don't need to uh, uh, go into detail about just how fractious things in the U.S. have been and just how much tinder in terms of the domestic terror and domestic violence side of things um, uh, you know, ha have been building. What they attempted to do was kind of light that fire. Now, we saw this with a couple other groups, too, but what makes the base stand out is that their leader is not based in the U.S., ironically enough. Uh, he's based in St. Petersburg, Russia. And as one of the fellow white nationalists that was arrested said, uh, he thinks that he might be a Russian spy outright. And this is something that's been confirmed by American law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Else, that, that is the working theory that this gentleman who oversees what we what is called the base, this white nationalist organization trying to spark violence that will end up breaking up the U.S. and tossing it into this race war uh, is based in, of all places, Russia, which, oh, by the way, is where the leader of the California secession movement yep. is also based. So that's kind of a long roundabout uh, you know, way of touching on all of these <clears throat> nominally disparate movements that now, are all aimed at breaking up the U.S. Now, the, the support that, that that's coming to these organizations from the Kremlin, either directly or indirectly through cutouts, is it mainly kind of promotion on social media, flying them to Moscow for conferences, or are there direct flows of funds to them from the Kremlin? Are they being financed by the Kremlin? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. And boy, I wish I had the answers to all the different funding mechanisms uh, thus far. The closest indication we've seen is exactly what we talked about a moment ago, the setup of this nonprofit cutout to just funnel the funds through there, right? You know, it doesn't take much discerning or digging to figure out where that money is coming from and what it's being used for. Now, fortunately, we haven't seen as of yet any uh, either further direct funding or boots on the ground type support. And I, you know, I, I mentioned boots on the ground because while we're talking about the American side of this, this fits within a far broader uh, global effort at cultivating these kinds of secession movements yep. elsewhere, you know, most especially in places like Catalonia in mm -hmm. Spain, where Russia reportedly sent an elite GRU unit to inflame secessionist yep. sentiment there, or even in places like the Balkans. So for instance, Bosnia Herzegovina, yep. um, the ethnic Serb enclave, Republic of Serbska, overseen by a gentleman who was sanctioned by the US for his efforts to break up Bosnia, but who nonetheless has friends in high places uh, in Moscow. So all of which is to say, we have seen this phenomenon play out time and again elsewhere. And we have seen funding mechanisms, personnel support, support for travel, support for networking, and obviously the social media component as well being right. wildly successful to cultivate these movements. I mean, you tend to see, if you look at this globally, two two separate but related phenomena so far. I, I see one is support for far-right politicians and political parties, right? The support for Marine Le Pen, in the, the the National Front in France, the support for um, the, the uh, for Nigel Farage during the in 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 the Brexit campaign, um, the AFD in Germany. Um, so you see that going on, yeah. and then you see this more covert support uh, for these like separatist movements, violent extremists, and other things. There's some predicate for this from the Soviet period, of course. I mean, yes. our our mutual friend Catherine Belton in, in, the, in the book we're going to be discussing in the second half wrote, a, wrote about uh, Putin's time in Dresden and the degree to which the KGB at that time was supporting the the the, uh, the, the Red Army faction in West Germany, the Bayermanov in West Germany. Um, so there is, there, this is, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, but you absolutely. See, you see these two things happening. Do you see any relationship between the two? And in, in the, I mean, in the U.S., we don't we do. What, yeah. What do you see, basically? Yeah. No, that's a great question, Brian, and I think it's a great point to try to delineate where these uh, kind of prongs of interference efforts or cultivation efforts really are, and and maybe even beyond that, uh, can we? Because as you mentioned. You know, there is so much of this out front public cultivation of support for whether it's, you know, outlets like RT and Sputnik or whether it's, frankly, commentary from the Kremlin for figures like Le Pen, for figures like Farage, to say nothing of the kind of financing questions mm -hmm. with that. Um, obviously, the American example being in 2016 with Donald Trump and the kind of questions about potential coordination or interference uh, uh, emanating mm -hmm. from that that relationship. You know, I think it certainly on my end, it, it does seem increasingly difficult, frankly, for me to figure out exactly where those dividing lines are. I mean, as you just mentioned, Brian, this is a tactic and frankly, a strategy we saw very clearly during the Soviet period, whether it was cultivation of, of fringe groups or posing as or amplifying mm -hmm. efforts at kind of a racial war. I think um, mutual friend Anton Shekhovsov. I was just going to mention book. Anton's work. On yes, this, yeah. a few years ago with Soviet agents posing as the KKK. Now, again, you can draw a dividing line that, with that, whereas we have the Russian Federation now, but the Soviet Union then. But again, there is certain commonality. And it's it's funny because, you know, we started this conversation talking about, about Texas. You've seen over the last few years is on the 
one hand, certainly a far, a far, uh, a, a significant growth in support for Texas secession. There was a poll that came out just last week that half of Texas Republicans are now in support of it. The um, we had the first bill since the Civil War for serious secession bill since the Civil War introduced a few months ago in the um, uh, in, in Texas, and the, the uh, uh, head of the Texas Republican Party came out in support of it. But what you've seen, so, so you have that dynamic taking place. But beyond well, that's that, that's a perennial was, dynamic of Texas political. Exactly. Culture. What I was following is that it just so happens that the primary organization that's pushing this, that's organizing for this, and that's lobbying for this, the Texas nationalist movement, is the same exact one that has made multiple trips to Moscow over the last few years that took Kremlin money to travel to Moscow to liaise with all those other successful secession movements elsewhere, to say nothing of the, of the context that they made in Russia itself. And what's frankly very concerning for me is that the local legislators that were working with this organization didn't seem to pay one mind that this Texas nationalist movement just so happened to have close ties in Russia, just so happened to be taking the Kremlin monies uh, themselves a few years ago. And obviously, they've continued pushing on, um, and we'll see where things go. I mean, it's, it's frankly concerning to see just how much support this has already gotten in Texas, to say nothing of the fact that, again, the primary organization pushing this is the one that had been flying back and forth and back and forth from Moscow. Interesting. Do you see a similar dynamic in California? A little bit less so in California. You know, Texas is the far right one. There's a little bit more ethno-nationalist. California component. is more of a far left one. Yeah. California is more of a far left one. Now, that's a great question that you asked me in 2021, right? I don't see quite as much support, quite as much dynamic. But say, for instance, we have a 2024 election in which Donald Trump ends up winning again. Donald Trump ends up back in the White House. You know, things are so fraught as they are right now in the U.S. Things are at such a uh, kind of crescendo in terms of political division, certainly in terms of the discourse surrounding it, that there is... An absolute possibility that folk, I mean, certainly California, a, a, a largely democratic state, obviously a massive state in and of itself. Um, who knows what kind of shenanigans we may see in a few years? Who knows what the result of that election may be? I can certainly see a path for California secession, California independence becoming far more salient than it was just a few years ago. I mean, I think it's salient worth noting in terms that, of public opinion and support for it. You know, in, 20, in 2016, even just a few years ago, one in three Californians said that they were on board with secession and with California independence. I mean, California could certainly survive if it does declare independence. It would be the fifth largest economy in the world. Exactly. I mean, I don't know the federal reaction to that. Texas <laughs> also, would, Texas also is, would be no slacker of a world economy. If, uh, in fact, both, exactly. Texas, both Texas's and California's economies, incidentally, are bigger than Russia's. Yeah, just so happened. <laughs> just so happened. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a reason that these are the two primary states. I mean, imagine what that would do for American influence, power, uh, you, you know, whatever you, metric you want uh, abroad. You know, you want to. This, this is what gets me. It's so much of this just tracks back to what we saw 30 years ago with the Soviet dissolution. So much of this on the Russian side is so clearly motivated by the ongoing yeah. belief. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that we, was American malfeasance, that that was America's fault. I mean, they completely forget that it was the Bush administration trying to tamp down. Exactly. On what, I was just going to say that we're just we just passed the anniversary of exactly. the so-called chicken Kiev speech, yes. which uh, President George H.W. Bush, um, a Texan, <laughs> gave, uh, gave uh, in the parliament in Ukraine where he begged, practically he was pleading with the Ukrainians not to declare independence from the Soviet exactly. Union, um, a much maligned speech from the perspective of the, of the Ukrainians these days, but it, it, it puts to lie the Russian claim 
that the United States wanted to break up the Soviet Union. The Bush administration wanted nothing of the sort. They wanted quite the opposite because they were worried about the instability that might unleash. Absolutely. Before we move on to talk to the non about the nonprofits, I just sort of want to briefly like what you have some policy wrecks here, but a lot of them involve decreasing polarization in the United States. You want to talk a little bit about your because I have some ideas on this myself. Actually. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's no surprise that these tensions that are propelling these kinds of separatist secessionist movements and organizations, that, that these tensions are, are part of a far broader phenomenon itself. That is to say, the increasing polarization uh, of the American electorate and, and within that, the kind of frustration with the federal government and this this kind of looking around or searching for uh, alternatives. I mean, there, there's a number of policy recommendations that I have in the the, uh, the chapter itself. I'll, I'll touch on a, a few of them right now. On, on the kind of federal level, I mean, we could do this on the state level, but certainly on the federal level, there needs to be some kind of legislation passed that does make it illegal for Americans, whether they're in Texas or California or wherever, to coordinate with foreign operatives and foreign election interference efforts. That is to say, you know, case in point, 2016, we saw the Texans coordinating with them. We saw the Californians coordinating as part of this broader uh, effort at political in interference. And yet nothing that they did, as far as anyone can tell, was illegal. There's no right. law against that kind of coordination, that kind of dissemination, that kind of organization, to say nothing of the funding that they received. There's nothing illegal well, about yeah. that. I mean, one of the one of the things I've been thinking about is the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which yeah. is really an it's an antique piece of legislation. I mean, it was it was it was passed in 1938. Yeah. So we're not even talking about the television age here. <laughs> we're, you know, we're not we're talking about the radio age. Yeah. Um, and it was passed to, to counter Nazi propaganda and yeah. to prevent Americans from covertly working for the Nazis. Yeah. Um, that 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 act needs the foreign foreign needs to be updated. Um, yeah. for the for the 21st century. Yeah. And, and 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 I think I mean the good news is our our friends the Australians have basically taken the American Far Act and said okay how would one update this yeah. for the 21st century and they went ahead and did it so we got a template to work on thanks yeah. to our friends in Australia yeah. but that's I don't know if you if you've thought about the uh, the the idea of reforming FAR along these lines. Well Brian it's it's funny you should ask my uh, dear sweet wife and I got married a few years ago and um, she's also a journalist she's far more successful than than I am but uh, she hasn't yet been on the on the verticals so hopefully someday uh, but the Foreign Agents Registration Act FARA was something that she and I talked about plenty during 2016 2017 and one of our wedding hashtags was actually hashtag reform FARA so you can tell that I married well uh, but yes it's very much something that continues to uh, need to be pursued whether it's a, a re reformation and certainly whether it's uh, a funding and the expansion of the DOJ task force that's maintaining that database and uh, prosecutions therein. Right. Okay, I want to move on to your other chapter, um, which is also kind of disturbing. And, and that chapter looked at Moscow's infiltration of the U.S. nonprofit sector, including some of the U.S.'s most prestigious think tanks, universities, and cultural institutions. I mean, we're talking about Harvard University. We're talking about the Council on Foreign Relations. We're talking about the New York Museum of Modern Art. We're talking about California's Fort Ross State Park. Talk a little bit about this. I mean, part of this is reputation laundering, yeah. but part of it's there's a little bit more of a nefarious purpose in this. Can, can, can you talk about both of those aspects here? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you said, Brian, you know, this chapter, uh, again, in this forthcoming Free Russia Foundation report, looks specifically at how Russia – uh, and the oligarchs that act as as the Kremlin's proxies, as we all know they uh, they are, have accessed uh, American nonprofits across the country with frankly gobsmacking 
uh, amounts of money. Now, as you say, part of that is to launder their reputation, that is to say, transform themselves from these kind of crony capitalists, these oligarchic pro-Kremlin figures into, uh, you know, quote unquote, moguls and philanthropists, et cetera, et cetera. But part of that is also to use those donations as a platform to access the highest rungs of American policymakers, uh, American uh, you know, tastemakers, uh, 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 American officials uh, across the board. So um, I, I had a couple numbers that I wanted to pull out from that because, again, it is, it's a substantial uh, chapter within a, a far more substantial report that has far more details uh, for listeners who want to, to dive in. Uh, I, I do want to say that much of the finding for the report, the chapter that I did, comes from research that I conducted alongside the great David Zaccone, who's uh, currently a professor at George Washington and who's part of this broader collective called the Anti-Corruption Data Collective, which has done, again, frankly, fantastic work uh, and much needed work. Um, what, what we wanted to really examine, the question that we had going in was how much money had oligarchs linked specifically to interference efforts. That's to say, not all the oligarchs that exist, whether it's in Russia or Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan, wherever, but those that have been specifically linked to foreign interference efforts, especially in 2016 and beyond. How much money have they donated to American nonprofits? Now, this is a question that doesn't have an easy answer because there is no consolidated <laughs> database of who's been donating what and when to whom and how was it publicized and has it been paid up. Uh, we had access to a number of kind of big data resources that we pulled from. Uh, and, you know, the top line number that we pulled is that we have found we found that these oligarchs, again, they're specifically linked to foreign interference efforts, donated over the last 20 years between 372 and 435 million dollars to over 200 mm. American nonprofits. Now, there's a range because some of the information we found is. This oligarch donated between one and five million dollars this year and between 10 and 20 next year. So that's why we have the range. But as you mentioned, Brian, these are the the, the kind of the who's who of the American mm -hmm. nonprofit world. You got the universities like Harvard. You got the you know think tanks like Brookings Council on Foreign Relation, uh, cultural centers like Museum of Modern Art and Kennedy Center across the board. Over 200 of these prominent think tanks had taken money directly from oligarchs linked to foreign mm -hmm. efforts. Wow, and, and and no laws are broken here. Basically, this is all. Well, no, no, that's that's the uh, the reality. Much in the secessionist chapter, there were no laws that were broken. There's, it was incredibly easy for them to simply show up with their money or have one of their proxies show up with the money and say, "We would like to donate a million, ten million, in one case, two hundred million dollars to Harvard." Uh, to help with whatever programs you like, whether it's the medical school at Harvard, whether it's a cultural excursion, whether it's funding a um, uh, you know a specific report or specific so it's unrestricted funding. It's unrestricted funding, which is that's like exactly the, right. you know that's that's what the, that's what everybody is seeking in the nonprofit world is not as unrestricted that's funding. That's precisely that's that's precisely uh, right. And I, did, I, I don't know if we have time, Brian, but I did want to touch on maybe my favorite case study from this, and that is the case of Victor Vexelberg, who mm -hmm. is a sanctioned Russian oligarch, right. sanctioned in 2018 by the US, but that was only after he had already successfully donated significant sums to, uh, on the one hand, the Wilson Center, which is a prominent uh, think tank in Washington, which ended up yeah. awarding him with a public service award, uh, saying he had led outstanding contributions to the rebirth of Russian philanthropy. And again, this is a gentleman very close to the Kremlin, specifically sanctioned for being part of the Kremlin's malign influence. But then in California, he swooped in to effectively rescue Fort Ross State Park, which is this uh, frankly, beautiful area in California, a former Russian colonial uh, outpost that had fallen on hard times. Uh, and he ca came in, helped oversee a number of donations to 
build it back up. And not only did he get great press, but he ended up uh, uh, rubbing shoulders with, whining and dining, the most powerful politicians in the most powerful state in the union. That mm-hmm. is to say, the leading figures in the state of California who came to him and said, thank you. Uh, you know, what other conversations they had, I uh, I don't know. But as, as one report said, the goodwill Vexelberg has accrued through his philanthropy has translated into political access. And that's mm-hmm. what's the root of it right there. Right, and access access is everything. So you have some policy recs here too, I understand. Yeah, I do. I mean, on the one hand, you certainly need far more due diligence. You need to create a best practices program at any and every nonprofit, from the universities to the think tanks to the museums, big, small, it doesn't matter. There has to be some kind of donation, best practices, and as I recommend, it should be public. It should be publicized. Mm-hmm. There should be donor roles, how much they donated, uh, 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 details on the kinds of due diligence you did on those donations, and then beyond that, the creation of a comprehensive uh, uh, database. Now, this is, again, also part of a broader phenomenon of these aren't just oligarchs that are doing this. You know, any number of other figures from other uh, uh, areas, other regimes have been following a similar pattern. It's not mm-hmm. as if these oligarchic figures invented this mechanism, but boy, have they taken advantage. No, yeah, the Gulf states do this regularly. Exactly. The Chinese do this regularly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is like, this is something I've been harping on for years now is that we're in this normative struggle with, with adversaries that do not share our, our interests or our values, but yet we're in this globalized world. It's it's not like the Cold War where you have these two hermetically sealed systems facing off against each other, and neither really, they're both both ability, each's ability to 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 reach into the other was limited. Here you got this totally globalized world where you have the, but yeah, you still have a similar normative struggle going on, and we haven't figured out how to how to how to handle this again. This is an area where far might be might uh, far reform might be useful. Yes, absolutely. And there has been increasing discussion about uh, fair registration for things like think tanks regarding specifically foreign funding. I was going to say one of the few bright spots, uh, notable bright spots from the previous administration was an actual emphasis on making sure that think tanks uh, and other nonprofits are disclosing uh, donations from foreign sources. Now, that was predicated especially on Chinese sources, but certainly that would cover something that we're talking about uh, today as well. Yeah, no, this this shouldn't be nation specific. Although there is, there should be a distinction made between friendly and unfriendly governments, and mm-hmm. that is going to be arbitrary. I mean, there's going to be a bit of subjectivity in that. Yeah. Um, but but it's tricky. But this is something we have to have to get have to have to figure out um, yeah. pretty quickly, I would argue. Yeah, Before absolutely. we move on into the second segment, I wanted to kind of just touch on kind of some broad themes. And one of them is that, and I wrote about this in my preface, is that what Russia seems to be doing is 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 exporting elements of its own domestic political system to Western countries like the United States. The whole Russian notion of the gongo, the hilariously, uh, you know, not government organized, non-governmental organizations <laughs> um, is, um, yeah. is again, uh, is, is, is what we see here, strategic corruption, all of this, we see yeah. basically this effort to replicate elements of the Russian domestic political system. The support for separatists is very reminiscent of what Russia is doing in the former Soviet Union, whether we're talking about Ukraine or Georgia or Moldova or, or, or other, former, other former Soviet states. How coordinated do you see this effort? This is something Mark Galliotti and I used to have a, an ongoing debate. I, I tend to agree with Mark. He sees an adhocracy. He I basically go- sees this, yeah, where 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 Putin sets broad goals and then just like 
let a thousand flowers bloom. Let you know. Let 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 everybody go do what they think I want them to do. If it works, I'll 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 you know I'll I'll invest in it. I call it a venture capital foreign policy. Actually, yeah, Brian, um, I think. It's so funny that you mentioned Mark's term because that's exactly the one that came to mind as well. And I, I certainly think that he is um, uh, certainly in the right ballpark uh, regarding that. It's almost this kind of freelance operations at, that we see from these oligarchic figures, from these uh, uh, figures behind, you know, as I mentioned, these kind of false, false nonprofits, these kind of gongos uh, earlier that are just putting feelers out to see what takes root. What is successful? What actually works? You know, I think a, a great case in point of that, a great case study for that is, you know, we talked about you know, earlier the cultivation of these American secession movements. And there's one primary nonprofit in Russia called the anti-globalization movement of Russia, which is kind of a mouthful. But, you know, I, I think this this notion of freelancing is is one that has really kind of, uh, 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 you know, solidified on my end because the gentleman who is running that nonprofit that, again, receives the funding from the Kremlin, flies over the American secessionists, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now, he just so happens to also be the biggest booster in Russia of uh, a, a woman named Maria Butina, who, uh -huh. as listeners may be familiar with, uh, was the uh, convicted foreign agent, convicted Russian agent, who successfully infiltrated the National Rifle Association here in the U.S. Oh, and oh, by the way, he's also been close with some of the interference efforts we've seen at play in Libya. So you see these kind of multiple strands mm -hmm. um, flowing through this one figure that seems to reinforce this notion that he's just kind of going around and seeing what works and then taking that to his superiors who can take that to again their man in the kremlin right. man on top uh to see what works and certainly he has been far more successful than um uh many others and i i would you know wager to say far more successful than maybe he even anticipated given just how wide open the u.s and much of the west has left uh ourselves left themselves um you know it, 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 we left the door open and we just invited him right in we shouldn't be at all surprised yeah. that this is what happened I mean, and we are not the only ones. They are basically playing on the fields that exist. Um, they, they didn't invent polarization in the U.S. We 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 did that, um, and then they're 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 seeing you know they're they're cultivating what is already there. Similar thing you see in Europe, right? Yeah. You see them, for example, exploiting tensions between ethnic poles in Lithuania with Lithuanians. You see them doing similar things with poles and Ukrainians. So you see you, you see this being done all over the place. We're just not used to it here. In the U.S. Yeah. The difference is Lithuania is no exactly what's going on when the, the minute this happens and they're on it. Right? They are familiar. Here, seen we're, just, we're just not familiar with this in the U.S. We thought our, you know, we were far away from Russia and then they, they, they were for any adversary for that matter and, and thought we were safe from this kind of thing. I would say pay attention to what Russia does to its neighbors because it's a pretty good indication of what they're going to be doing farther west uh, a little bit later. I mean, the, the Estonians were getting hacked before it was cool, you know? Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to say nothing of the kind of false narrative crafting we saw out of Georgia in 2008, you know, or any number of case studies uh, since. But Brian, you're, you're exactly right. They didn't invent these 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 uh, divisions. They didn't invent these fractures, you know, or in the financial sector. They didn't invent the anonymous shell companies. They didn't invent the anonymous real estate purchases. They're just the ones taking advantage. And now it's up to us to make sure we plug those holes, to make sure that we close that door uh, so they can't keep wandering in however, whenever they want to try to tear the whole place down. Yeah, I'd, I'd say about, I don't know what percent, but but up, we're up more than 50%, and I would say upwards of like 80, 90% of this is domestic reform. 
basically. Yeah, absolutely. A lot getting of our, own getting houses our house in order. In yeah. order. That's absolutely uh, right. Cleaning up the, 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 the state of Delaware and the city of London is part of it. There's a lot There's a lot of things that need to be done in the financial sector, in the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And then a lot of it just in terms of just turning the temperature down in this country and, getting, and reducing the polarization, which is, which is um, playing right into the hands of our adversaries. On that note, we will shift gears in a few moments. We'll continue our discussion, um, but we will shift gears to take a look at a lawsuit against a prominent British journalist and author that illustrates another disturbing trend, the Kremlin's use of what has become known as lawfare, the use of Western courts to stifle criticism of the Putin regime in the West. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist, longtime Russian washer, and Texan, I didn't even know that, Casey Michelle, author of of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy, and author of not just one, but two chapters of the Free Russia Foundation's forthcoming report, The Kremlin's Malign Influence Inside the United States. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So in the second part of the program, I wanted to focus on a lawsuit that is taking place across the Atlantic in the United Kingdom. Um, that I know both of us, you and I, Casey, are watching very, very closely for a number of regions. We're watching it closely, first and foremost, because it does involve someone uh, whom we both know, respect, and consider a friend and colleague, and that would be the great British journalist Catherine Belton, author of the highly acclaimed book Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Took on the West. It's a book I assign to my students at UTA regularly because it is a great book. Um, and I worked, I'll say, you know, truth and uh, tr uh, full disclosure here, I worked with Catherine at the Moscow Times in the 1990s and know her quite well. And I know her to be a tenacious and meticulous reporter. When Catherine goes to press with something, you could take it right to the bank. Um, she, of course, went on to a distinguished career at the Financial Times and then later at Reuters. Uh, Catherine's publisher, HarperCollins, is being sued by several Russian oligarchs, most notably Roman Abramovich, um, uh, over some of her claims in the book, all of which I might add, and I've read this book over and over again, have been meticulously sourced. This is Catherine Belton we're talking about, right? Um, another reason we're both following this closely is – the broader effect, the chilling effect cases like this have on journalism and scholarship about Russia. When deep-pocketed Kremlin oligarchs abuse Western legal systems against their critics, a practice, as I said, that's become known as lawfare. Uh, you wrote an excellent piece about this for the New Republic this week, Casey. I want to quote from it briefly to get this part of the discussion rolling. You wrote, and I quote, the recent lawsuits against Belton and her publishers should concern the American media, not just because 
one of its distinguished colleagues across the pond is being targeted, but because oligarchic castes have spread their influence throughout the West, and we know about about only a fraction of their shady dealings, they intend to keep it that way at all costs. Can you elaborate uh, for our readers? What are, what are the lawsuits that, that, that Catherine's facing? I know one of them is from, uh, there, there's, a, there's a few of them out there. I know you've been tracking them really closely. Um, and, and then let's broaden this out and talk about this broader phenomenon. Yeah, there were a, a number of lawsuits uh, that were filed against Catherine right before the deadline for uh, uh, statute of limitations regarding uh, lawsuit, uh, lawsuit filing. There's, again, as you mentioned, Brian, this is from a number of pro uh, pro uh, Kremlin, excuse me, uh, oligarchs, uh, as well as from uh, Rosneft uh, itself. Again, the uh, um, uh, the Russian uh, state-owned enterprise. Um, a, a few of them have been settled, fortunately, already. Which means that the last one, the most important one, is still standing, and that is the lawsuit from, uh, as you mentioned, Ro uh, Roman Abramovich, the uh, perhaps best known as the owner of the Chelsea Football Club. Um, uh, you know, Abramovich, is, as Catherine details so well. In the book, you know, Abramovich likes to portray himself as this kind of uh, apolitical figure. He's just certainly, uh, okay, maybe he's an oligarch, and yes, some of his time predated Putin, but it's not as if he was close to Putin during the 1990s, and it's certainly not as if he's living in uh, Moscow right now or living uh, in the Kremlin right now. If anything, he's uh, kind of similar to what we talked about earlier in this conversation. He's a he's a philanthropist. He's a mogul. He's a successful businessman who just wants to travel the world. And oh, by the way, he likes to uh, own a football team. And how nice is it, uh, you know, when they win the Premier League championship? Who could be against him? Now, lo and behold, as we saw in Catherine's book, that's not quite all there is to the story. As Catherine sourced multiple sources, right, mm -hmm. three different sources, yep. confirming that uh, Abramovich didn't buy ch the Chelsea Football Club because he was some, uh, you, you, you know, uh, uh, open-hearted football fan. Well, he might have had ulterior motives. And what may those ulterior motives have been? Well, it just so happened that at the time, this was around 2003, when we really began to see the uh, uh, the Putin regime really coming into its own, really dropping any kind of democratic facade. I mean, I remember the Yukos case, obviously, with mm -hmm. Horikovsky right around then. Uh, beginning to eliminate questions about its democratizing, and really beginning to slide in autocracy. That was when Putin just so happened to uh, maybe put an idea in Abramovich's ear that uh, maybe it would be a, a nice thing if he purchased Chelsea and injected significant dirty Russian money, dirty pro-Kremlin cash, into the British economy. And, oh, wouldn't that be nice if we opened doors to certain British policymakers? Wouldn't that be nice if maybe we transformed some of these oligarchic figures into, uh, again, sympathetic, uh, uh, successful businessmen who just want to build bridges between London and Moscow. That's all they want to do. And, you know, again, if, if their football team wins on the pitch, that's great as well. But this is what Catherine's reporting uncovered. This is what she's published. And now this is what Abramovich is uh, filing suit against in what, frankly, may be the most expensive defamation and libel suit in British history. Now, her publisher, HarperCollins, thankfully is standing by her right now. This is in the British High Court. And there's a reason these lawsuits happen in, Brit in Britain. And this is something you get into your in, in, in your article, the idea of libel tourism. Right. This suit wouldn't would never get to a court in the United States because of the First Amendment protections that we have here. Exactly. And because and especially the protections of journalists um, yep. in, in this case, British law is a little bit different. So it's no accident. That they're, they're they're doing this. They're 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 filing this lawsuit in the United Kingdom. Um, this also calls to mind um, another 
friend of my, uh, Karen Dawisha, a friend of both of us when she was uh, alive, rest her soul. I mean, when Karen was publishing her book, Putin's Kleptocracy, which is uh, similar to Catherine's book, in, 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 except that it's a more of a scholarly account, where Catherine's mm-hmm. book is a journalistic account. Uh, Karen's UK publisher wouldn't even publish because of fears of lawsuits. I remember having her on the podcast back in back in the day to talk about this, and she finally found, you know, finally got a U.S. publisher. Yeah. And to my knowledge, it's only been published. It's never been published in a UK edition, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. But you also have the Oleg Deripaska's case against uh, AP um, for for reporting correctly, connecting him to to the uh, to to the electoral interference effort into into Paul Manafort. Um, there's also another case against BuzzFeed. Look, can you broaden broad this out? And let's talk about this broader threat and what can be done about it because this yeah. is going to have a chilling effect. Yes, absolutely, Brian. I mean, I think there's a couple things to pull on from there. One, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm obviously speaking as an American, as an American journalist. I'm very, very grateful for the First Amendment protections that uh, that that I and my colleagues are able to maintain. I certainly don't take that for granted. And it's very clear and it's very unfortunate that our British counterparts do not enjoy those same protections. One of the, the terms that you mentioned earlier was libel tourism. Another one that you mentioned was, was lawfare. And both of those kind of describe the same thing. But that is actors uh, abroad, foreign actors, in some cases foreign regimes, specifically opening cases, specifically filing lawsuits in the UK because of the ease with which they can and because of the lack of nominal protections uh, against journalists. So I think an easy way to to kind of envision this is that in the US, the onus is on the uh, plaintiff filing the suit to prove malice, to prove malicious intent. To prove malice, and, yeah, malice. Exactly, to prove, to prove uh, uh, misinformation, whereas in the United United Kingdom at its kind of basic level, the onus is on the journalists to prove what they're saying is true, to prove their reportage, whereas there is no burden of proof on whoever is bringing the lawsuit. Now, we've seen some reforms in England, in Wales over the last few years, but those haven't been sufficient. And instead, we have seen increasing numbers of British law firms, British lawyers, British barristers proving more than willing to take the kinds of suspect financing from oligarchs, from regimes, from despotic families around the world. It's not just in the post-Soviet space, not just in Russia, to uh, benefit themselves in order to target journalists uh, uh, elsewhere. I, I just want to cite one thing. There was, um, th- there's increasing research into this. Thankfully, there was a great report last year from the UK's Foreign Policy Center that found, and I'll just pull, pull this out from the article, that a majority of investigative journalists around the world have received legal threats and the majority that come from a foreign nation, um, or the plurality from a foreign nation, that's one jurisdiction. That's the United Kingdom. That is mm. to say, the UK is the most popular foreign ju- jurisdiction for these kinds of intimidating lawsuits to be filed. Because remember, these are oligarchs we're talking about. Right. These fees are a pittance. They don't even yeah. need to win. All they need to do is bleed the reporters, bleed right. the outlets dry, uh, and they'll consider it a success. Or, as you mentioned with Karen Dawisha, they don't even need to file the suits anymore. Just the they fear can simply of it. have that threat hanging over right. the publishers themselves, the journalists themselves, uh, and let them, you know, flee elsewhere. Effectively, have to uproot, have to go to the U.S. I mean, I think it's uh, not any surprise that in one of my conversations with a very 
you know, well known and certainly very successful British journalist uh, who told me that up to 50% of what had already been groundbreaking reportage that he's done on a number of Russian oligarchs had to be left on the cutting room floor because of lawsuit concerns. We already know so much, and yet there's so much that's just left to the side because of these concerns about these frivolous lawsuits, these vexatious lawsuits that the oligarchs and their British barristers have no problem filing. It seems to me that if you look at the thread that runs through a lot of these cases, it tends to be aimed at journalists and scholars that are seeking to expose this dark money in the United States, basically. The Karen Dawisha case, of course, the, the title of her book was Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia, right? Um, the beautiful thing on that perspective is like, but the, the, the threat of the lawsuit and the controversy surrounding the publication of Karen's book basically increased that made everybody want to read the hell out of it right i mean i was going to read the hell out of it anyway because i know karen and then she's working in a field i i you know you and i follow but a lot of people that you know never thought about this picked that book up because of that karen this is another textbook i give i assign regularly to my students at uta because it is a great piece of scholarship just like Catherine's book is a great piece of journalism and i'm wondering if this could have this the uh, the opposite effect i mean i mean Catherine belton's book has been so widely praised so widely acclaimed it is not having any trouble with sales at the moment i'm sure um but maybe this is going to give it another boost i don't know Did, could this have the opposite effect well certainly on the one hand the sales of the book i imagine would be uh, would be going up uh considerably because of these these lawsuits you know we call this the kind of the barbara streisand effect that's that's the the name for this phenomenon where because you're bringing attention to something that nobody else is paying attention to, all of a sudden so many more folks are paying attention to now these allegations that mm -hmm. Roman Abramovich is little more than a proxy for Putin as it pertains to injecting uh, monies into the uh, into the West. I, you know, I, I don't think that that would be any surprise whatsoever. I will say what would be interesting to watch moving forward is, as I'm sure listeners are aware, not long ago, Alexei Navalny's team issued a recommendation for the specific sanctioning of 35 Russian nationals, one of whom being Roman Abramovich. Now, Abramovich mm -hmm. is – he's had visa issues with the UK. He's no longer living there as far as anyone knows, uh, but he still hasn't been sanctioned by the mm -hmm. US. He still hasn't been sanctioned by the UK. He still hasn't been sanctioned by Brussels or, or Ottawa or Canberra or any of the major Western countries. Um, I do wonder whether or not his willingness to go to the mat against, again, this renowned investigative journalist is only going to increase the likelihood that policymakers in Washington or in London take another look at Navalny's suggestions and say, you know what? Yeah, I think this might be a yeah. good idea to sanction him. Now, I've been an advocate for simply following Navalny's lead on who specifically to sanction in this space. I'm surprised, frankly, that Western policymakers haven't done so as of yet, but I certainly think this is that much more ammunition for them to take his suggestion and finally sanction Roman Abramovich. Right. No, and I, I'm, um, I mean, it's, it's just by coincidence at the moment I'm reading Tom Burgess's excellent book, Kleptopia. Mm -hmm. Kleptopia. I'm sure you're familiar oh, with absolutely. how, how oh, dark, dirty book. money is conquering the world. And I mean, this largely focuses on Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, and but what it but I see the similar themes kind of playing out where you have Nazarbayev effectively using the UK legal system to go after his political enemies who were seeking political asylum in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And that it, it's it's just this real irony that these autocratic regimes who do not have rule of law systems at home are abusing the rule of law systems abroad, particularly in the United Kingdom, to go after their not only their critics, the Western journalists like Catherine Belton, 
but also there are their enemies who have, are seeking asylum there. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything that could be done to tighten up this loophole and prevent, present, prevent this from being done. This is, again, this globalized, this, this normative struggle taking place in a globalized world. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Brian, I mean, again, just what we talked about earlier, so much of this comes down to cleaning up our own houses, right? Whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in the U.K., EU, Canada, you name it. Passing legislation that tightens up the kinds of openings that these oligarchs and these proxies see. That is to say, making it far more difficult, far more costly for them to file what we call vexatious lawsuits or strategic lawsuits against public participation or SLAP for short. So this is anti-SLAP legislation. We see this in a number of states in the US and we do see increasing discourse around it in London as well. So in terms of potential reformations, absolutely passing anti-SLAP legislation at the federal level in Washington, uh, or in London, or even beyond that. You know, it's funny, I was talking with an academic at Stanford who's researched how foreign dictators take full advantage of American and uh, Western court systems. And he suggested not necessarily making it uh, a, a broad writ, broad anti-slap statutes, but applying it at the very least to foreign nationals and foreign sovereigns. Because right now they have this very clear asymmetric advantage mm -hmm. on any number of topics, whether it's funding, whether it's access, uh, whether it's, again, just the basic utility of these kinds of Western pro-kleptocracy tools that they have access to. Um, you know, there are a number of policy proposals that you can push. And again, I, you know, as you mentioned, there was, I wrote a piece about this just the other day in the New Republic. I would also highly recommend following the Foreign Policy Center's work on this. They have done some absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic work uh, on this. And um, certainly, you know, we're, we're just getting started on this front. Yeah, no. Well, that's we're bumping up against the end here, Case. This has been a, a fascinating discussion. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up for the week? No, Brian, look, I, I think this has obviously been a great, great discussion. And I think there is one kind of element that ties all of this together. You know, these are nominally disparate phenomena, nominally disparate uh, uh, networks, you know, with, with the separatists and, and the white nationalists, um, uh, you know, with the nonprofit donations and with, with access to the uh, uh, to, to lawsuits themselves. But, but at the very core, you know, maybe at the 10,000 foot level, this is the use and abuse of Western tools, Western markets, Western institutions against ourselves, against the themselves. weaponization of democracy against democracy. It is the, the weaponization. <laughs> it's the undercutting. It is because, again, to use the metaphor I used earlier, we left the door wide open. 30 years ago, I know Brian. Yep. One of the you know kind of great reasons that I uh, listen reasons that I listen to the to the vertical is because one of the points that you've made a few times is you know if the Soviet Union had dissolved in say the 1950s rather than the 1990s, if it mm. d dissolved in a different regulatory atmosphere, yeah. how different would the kind of 30 years? That's, yeah. yeah, And I think it's a, it's a fascinating counterfactual, and I, I frankly wish it was <laughs> discussed more widely because I want to I, I want to write something about this. I'm just figuring yeah. out how to how to frame it, but yeah, because I do believe that was a problem. That, that the, oh, yeah. where we were in terms of a regulatory environment yeah. when the Soviet Union broke up yeah. left a lot of just this this porous holes in yes. our in our regulatory system that be, have become security threats Absolutely. now and that's that's and if we had if it had happened at a time when we had a a, a more robust regulatory environment pre Reagan for example yeah. um, and um, and that is to say nothing of the the, the relative merits of deregulation deregulation sure, and regulation. Sure. I mean, a, a modern economy has to calibrate this to the needs of the time. Yeah. Um, but had this happened in a more stringent regulatory environment, 
um, and in a more robust social safety net environment, um, then I think the opportunities for for this kind of infiltration would have been fewer. That would be my working hypothesis. That's 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 the way I think about it. Yeah, I would certainly buy into that hypothesis and absolutely read any paper you write on that, Brian. Yeah. Well, the report that should be coming out next week is uh, from the Free Russia Foundation. It's called The Kremlin's Malign Influence Inside the United States. I urge everybody to to, to get on it once it's out there. I'll, I'll be certainly announcing it on my social media, as I'm sure Casey will as well. And if you haven't read uh, Catherine Belton's Putin's People, shame on you. Go read it right now, is what I, I would say. And that's all we have time for today, so we'll wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist, longtime Russia watcher, and Texan Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy, and author of not just one, but two chapters of the Free Russia Foundation's report, The Kremlin's Malign Influence Inside the United States. Casey, thanks as always for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Brian. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Vegas is in the vir- virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my messes and making us all sound a whole hell of a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. Uh, you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.